Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. David Kidder is an experienced entrepreneur, an advisor to Fortune 500 leaders, and an active angel investor with more than 40 investments. In 2013, he co-founded Bionic to ignite growth revolutions in large enterprises. David has spent the last decade speaking throughout the world on the topic of growth mindsets, innovation and transformation, and the insight of his work as captured in his latest book, New to Big. So David, you're, uh, you're outside the city of New York, correct? Rye, New York, just uh, headquarters of uh, my company are in New York City, but just uh, just outside in the suburbs with three kids and dogs and all the madness. Okay. Well, you got a lot of interesting things about you that I want to cover today and we'll, uh, we'll go in different directions, but yeah, it's interesting. You're an angel investor. You go into companies, you do transformations, you're, you're an author, you know, you, you're a guest on podcasts and a speaker. So a lot of interesting things about you. How did you even get started? Like in the space, talk to me about your journey. Like, were you, were you like, when you're growing up, were you like, Hey, I'm, I love business. This is something I want to do. I want to do turnarounds and transformations one day, or how did you even get to where you are? Yeah, so I I started as an entrepreneur right like in college. I had uh, I guess my mentor and who happened to be my uncle, but also also a great entrepreneur, kind of got me started on on the road of like thinking and living my life for myself in a way, <laughs> as opposed to you know underneath an organization. And so in college, had an opportunity to help you know launch a startup and uh, you know build that up, and then had my first age kind of twenty one, twenty two, built and sold that quickly in two or three two years, and then tiny little thing. And then went to New York and uh, joined a team and did a roll-up, took that public, or it was public, and I joined the team. We helped do a roll-up around that. And then started uh, from scratch, first venture-backed uh, company, the mobile space, built and sold that. Then it's a kind of gap year and traveled around the world about for about two years, a bunch of countries, and got to see the world. And then came back and started building a family and, and then my third company. And then we raised a bunch of money and built that up and sold that. And then I started Bionic. I kind of accidentally, I had, during that process of building this last company, you know, like every, every, every company, you have a blink of death moment and you're like, you know, why didn't I know that? And you, you right. want to know the answer and you cut your pinky off to get it right. You know, just to fix that business, because in many cases, the, the, the startup journey is, you know, the problems have been solved, just not by you. Sure. And so you, you want to cheat sheet. You're just like, someone tell me how to solve this problem, which I'm facing. And so I went out and started uh, doing, you know, I did 45 interviews, spent 300 hours with some of the best entrepreneurs in the world 
and basically ask them, how do you bet your life? Like how, what are the lenses you view the world through that allow you to pick an idea or a solution to a need that becomes, you know, in many cases, a unicorn. So it's like Sarah Blakely of Spanx and Robin Chase of Zipcar, Elon, of course, and Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn, who wrote the forward of the book. And just about like how they think. And then the second question was, what do you do in the first five years not to die? And so that was like right. B-roll, all their best advice. It was like a gut check, hiring, firing, manage yourself, boards, et cetera. But they all said kind of the same thing, these same five lenses and uh, that they looked the world through. And I did a keynote. This is a longer answer than you wanted, but I, I, I keynote for a big company, GE, the chairman was a friend of mine and uh, had asked a very provocative question around, you know, how often do they launch $50 million companies? And I was, I said, probably never. And that prodded uh, a whole journey with Eric Reese and I to go help look at, can we reskill the company and in, in how it works in the case lean and then also how it thinks. And so I led the growth mindset piece. And what we realized is that, you know, when you go into the bowels of a large organization, when you meet the employees, they're like, uh, we don't have a uh, employee problem. It's the leadership. It's how they think. So the reality is you need new skills. Yes, but you need permission. You need systematic permission to take risks. And we spent the last eight years building Bionic in this latest book called New to Big, describing what we call the growth OS, an operating system for growth. You have them for efficiency. Do you have them for growth? And that's what we focus on. All right. So a lot to unpack there. Let me start yeah. from the beginning. You know, As you were joining these startups or you were doing your own thing, were there certain characteristics or attributes you were looking for in a company and a team and an idea? Like, How did you know within your gut, within your heart, you know, which direction to, to go into and, and, and who to join and, and what to pursue? Well, the job of a founder is three things, right? First is vision, which means where you're taking the company. And you have to be kind of right within the three-year window and you have to be really right in the year you're in quarterly. And so uh, the second thing is talent. You got to put the people in the right seats at the right time to deliver on that vision. And then third is you never run out of money. You either earn it or you raise it. And it's actually, it's simple to understand those three things. The problem is there's a million ways to fail at doing that well. So for example, you know, you employ one through 20, you effectively have to be perfect. You hire the wrong person, the wrong seats. It takes six months, 90 days to figure that out. You get rid of them. It's a year, you're out of money. So you have to be perfect one through 20. You get one or two mistakes, 20 through 50, and maybe a handful from 50 to 100. That, that's a fatal path to run. Running out of money, if it's a compelling thing, ideally your customers pay you, right? That's a great way. 99% of business begin bootstrapped. I have a, a $25 million company today. It's bootstrapped. I've loved that journey because my validation was their need in solving it. So the first question is the hardest. Because when you ask entrepreneurs who've crossed the finish line successfully, to what degree was their success, you know, good timing, good fortune, good outcomes, they're always like 80% was, you know, being there when it happened. So you're predicting a future, usually with an outside force that's involved. This is going to happen someday and you have to be there when it happens. And so, and hopefully you're number one or number two in the space to solve that need that's being driven by an outside force. That's why it's a startup. Startups are high growth companies. So that first thing is the most important. What is your proprietary gift to solve a problem that's emerging in the world that eventually will accelerate? And so getting that timing right is really, really difficult to do well because you can't cross your fingers. It has to be true. Yep. So what about you personally? Like when you're trying to make a decision like that, should I join a team or should I start a company? What do you use? Do you use intuition? Do you like write out a list of pros and cons? Mm -hmm. Like how do you make decisions like that? Because, you know, obviously that could take you in, in one direction or another in life. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think uh, a founder's journey is really difficult, right? There's a lot of difficult journeys. I think it's the high, obviously it's the highest risk. You know, you have to go, be, you have to be willing to go all the way to the bottom. You have to be willing to start over. So if you're not willing to do that, 
you, know, you also can have a hugely successful career by being number two, right? You know, or number three, like there's skills in the world about joining a team. But I think the founder's role is really obsession, which is, you know, you kind of have that kind of, you have to care the most about a problem world and you need to have a proprietary gift to solve it. And those proprietary gifts are like little jewels. Um, they're oysters, they're like pearls, and they, they become often through a life experience, that you know how to solve something that no one in the world knows how to solve. Because whoever's going to win that need in the world, whoever's going to win that space is going to know it. They're going to know the magic because they lived it. And so I think when you're chasing white space or assembling a company, you know, uh, if, you, you know, if you're doing that and it's kind of a, a fast follow or it's, it's a market consolidation, it's a very different thing. But when somebody's truly new to the world, and you're creating, inventing, you're calling the world into your model, your solution, as opposed to collecting and reorganizing existing models. That's a very, very difficult path. But a lot of founders choose that. The best advice I ever received about that was from Elon, which was wishful thinking is the enemy. <laughs> when your fingers are crossed, you hope your customers behave in such a way. You hope that you know, your market shows up for you. Or you're struggling, but you think you're falling in love with the struggle. You're pathologically optimistic. I mean, these things are really dangerous. You know, great entrepreneurs are rationalists, they're opportunistic, but they see a vision. They know it's commercially true and they're the person to solve it. I'll close the saying this, which is when I look back at my career, my very modest career, the only times anything really worked were because I cared the most. I literally cared the most and probably no one in the world cared more. Uh, and I've had a proprietary gift to solve it. I think those things don't happen often, maybe once in your career, maybe twice if you're lucky. So I just, I, the, the calculus around this has to be very tight and very high to be able to do this well. How do you know if you have a proprietary gift to the world? Like, how do you figure that out? Well, your customers will tell that to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are metrics that show that to you, right? You know, classic SaaS metrics also matter to the person, right? What how are what are your long term relationships with your car partners? Are they transient, transactional? Are they single contract, year long contract, relational, career, life? Like there are dimensions around this. Is your offering? A, I always say, is it, is it a painkiller, not a vitamin? Right? Sure. Vitamins are things you could set down. Yeah, you're wonderful, you guys, your product, etc. But I don't need it, or I'm not willing to pay for it. So I think that you're when you're looking for long term significant scale in a business, you just need a resounding voice both in behavior and in kind of what they do versus say, and also the economics that flow to you that demonstrate you're kind of the one of one to solve that problem. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Sure. And with startups and working with startups, you know, obviously running out of cash is really important. You don't want to run out of cash. So getting out there in the market and testing your product, testing that proprietary gift to see if there's stickiness there is is really critical. Is there like a balance or or through your experience, what have you seen with companies having a really strong value prop, right? They're solving a, a true need in the marketplace, you know, that vitamin versus pain pill idea there versus having a poor sales strategy. Is it sales sometimes? Is it a poor sales strategy or is it they have a bad value prop or they're not communicating? Like, Talk to me, Like, where do companies fall apart in the startup phase around those two ideas? Well, I mean, the, I, I would go back to the five lenses that came through that, the, the book we wrote, 
called the Startup Playbook, which was, and then I'll answer your question kind of out of order because I think it's really important to get this right. So one is, I think there are some sort of like things that have to be true about the company. They're not one or zero decisions, like it is or isn't. It's that it's becoming true because of the way the leader thinks. Mm-hmm. So if you can look at your opportunity in the marketplace through these five lenses and you can ask, are these things becoming true? The execution of how you solve these questions, the question on execution becomes the second order question. So the lenses are first proprietary gift. Why us? What's the thing that we know about solving this need that no one in the world knows, really? So what's our secret? We all need a secret. It has to be true. That's where the wishful thinking uh, becomes a question. Second is we need extreme focus on that need. So the more things that we do, the more optionality we have, the more mediocre we are. And so in the beginning, stacking success in one outcome is often the most uh, critical thing to get right because you're going to be attracted to lots of things you could build, features, markets, et cetera. So being very good at saying no is often one of the most important and difficult skills to have. The third is you got to build painkillers, not vitamins. So that answers who is the customer, right? Who's rich and in pain and how do they behave? So if my sales isn't working, but I'm selling to someone who's poor and in pain, so to speak, you know, they're not a buyer, right? They're not going to be able to build a business to recover. If it takes forever to close something, because of where it's sold the organization and to whom and who owns the budget, who has the gun and badge, like all of these things matter. And the last two lenses are real about how well you execute. The fourth one is 10X, which is what element of the business, if we asymmetrically invested in, it becomes impossible to replicate eventually. You know, it's kind of like Gladwellian 10,000 hours, right? Over sure. five years, you, you will win the space if you just get that focus on the thing that becomes the whole business rests on. A lot of businesses don't have that, which means they'll be commodities ultimately. And the last is, is monopoly, which is how do we put hooks and bargains in customers so they never leave? Otherwise, I'm always having to replace customers or I don't, I'm not with them long enough for them to really teach me how to be value them forever. I'm always solving the first year problem as opposed to the third year problem where it becomes habit. So these, the way you think and the way you get through these gates of building a company matter a lot. Those are the lenses. The execution stuff, the questions you're asking really become, how good is my team at solving the aspects of building the company, right? So there's a distinction between company building and business building. I'm really describing that you have to get the company building part right in order to build a great business. Mm -hmm. And you can't conflate the two. If it doesn't know how to think or look at the world, it'll chase everything, which means you have a sales execution problem. But it knows the problem, the need, the market, the solution, what actually drives value they'll know whom to sell to and to when and how to qualify and how to organize themselves, inside sales, outside sales, direct, analog, digital. I think the flow state of the business of how to execute becomes clear when you know what you're trying to solve in the world. A lot of yeah. companies are trying to solve too many things and then they try. They think of it as strategy, right? We need a different components of how to sell so we get all the revenue streams. Is that true? Is that really true? Does that lead to the best customers forever? What type of customer? So I think we could unpack this all day long, having run SaaS companies and service companies now and understanding the biz ops between below those things. You cannot like cross your fingers. You really need to answer some of these fundamental anchoring things and then build the organization that can capture demand and new customers and then keep them really for as long as you possibly can, hopefully longer than 36 months. Let's talk about focus and let's talk about you know founders that fall in the trap of the feature trap or they, they try to pursue too many things. What if their argument to you is, is say, they say, hey, David, look, I get that, right? But we're trying to test the market with all these different ideas to see what works and what sticks. Is that a bad strategy? It's not in the beginning. 
But if you're still trying to figure out like who your customers after three years, right? Right. And you're still experimenting. It, it may be just an, a mirage or an oasis. Like you, if you're good at this job, you should have an instinct and data and evidence and truth in the room and ask for the truth to be able to discover that answer. And knowing like, you know, really being angry up front. So like, for example, in the SaaS business, right? You, you, don't, you never want to be in the middle of any market. Either way, you focus on the rich and in pain or the masses. Because if, you, if you're in the middle, like you're just good enough to like get to the bottom of an enterprise marketplace, you'll be probably bought for price. You're a cheap version of the expensive good version. And therefore, you'll never really be able to compete because they have all the oxygen. That's why, you know, Apple iPhones own like 90% of all the profit in the smartphone business, despite having a modestly fast follower. You know, Samsung always innovates faster than they do and with better stuff. And then they have come along, claim it and do it themselves. But they dominate almost all the profit of that space. Conversely, when you're too expensive for the masses, you have more features and or you're just better version of the cheap stuff and people can't afford you then you're, you have the wrong product market fit. So it's the wrong signals. I mean, we're, we have to be a low cost product, but have massive dimension. It's really a price to the bottom and winning all of the pieces as opposed to the few. So it, that's philosophical, right? How sure. you capitalize that business, who it's chasing, how you build and scale. Um, those are very different strategies. But if you're not clear of who the customer is, what we're trying to achieve from the beginning through the lenses you mentioned before, you'll never know how to build a sales strategy. You'll never how to know how to position the marketplace. You'll have the wrong messaging, the most pricing. You can just see the flow state breaks down so quickly. And then you're trying to hustle. You're trying to like just kill yourself on the treadmill without pro- you might have product market fit, but the wrong customer. So getting this right all matters. Yeah, absolutely. And you probably had some really interesting conversations as you were doing the research for New to Big. Was there a, a particular interview or conversation that you had that really like stood out to you that really like shook your, your mindset? You're like, wow, th- this really was impactful. Well, I had, I'll, I'll give you two. I had a, we, one of our long-term partners. Uh, it's a fortune you know, 100, maybe fortune 50 company. The CEO, after I did one of my keynotes came up to me, this is the first time I met him actually. He said, I don't think my company tells me the truth. And my response was like, it doesn't. And in fact, it's probably intellectually dishonest, right? These amazing people who are, you've hired the best, literally they have an amazing company. And I'm like, and, but they're, they have to lie to you because the cost of failure is too high. No one can fail here. Everyone's got to be right. Every idea has to be right because you do so few of them. You have five big bets a year that you bought from some super, you know, Mick agency, you know, Mick consulting firm. I mean that as a, a pale of words, but like, you know, and then you're executing against it and you're, you're a zombie factory of lies, right? You know, prematurely scaled ideas of technology in search for a problem. The reality is, is that like until you lower the cost of failure and you build the trust, people can't tell the truth. How can you build a company that's not based in truth? And I think at the center of the work that we do at Bionic is really about the interior life of the leader. You know, I wrote the purpose of the company now eight years ago. You know, we ignite growth revolutions. I originally conceptualized that around like, oh, we launch new ventures. We launch new growth effectively for the core. Because I, I sort of at war with the word innovation because there's so much brain damage around it. Like it's grow or die, right? Urgency. But the reality was it wasn't about the company. It was about the interior life of the leader. They are the permission. They either want truth in the room or they want the dishonesty and the ceiling of permission. So once you get them to understand, they can lift the ceiling of permission when there's more truth in the room because bad ideas should die fast and cheap and good ideas should grow. And the reality is it's so like Warren Buffett's, you know, his question that most people hate when they ask him, well, you know, Warren, how do I become rich? He said, slowly. People right. hate that answer, right? Right. 
reality is, is that you got to be committed to growth in the same way you have six sigma for efficiency. Where is the operating system for growth? Why can't we turn growth on all the time? But we could, we can operate at will. We could take a little product, a little screw and make it global. That didn't happen. Happened over 30 years. Right. As a skill. We're bringing this back. We're refounding these companies on mindset, the mechanics to do that. So that's one. The second one, um, I've given you such long answers. This is like the worst radio interview ever. So I apologize. <laughs> it's, it's I'll, all you, I'll, I'll be quick with this one. Um, but I, I, I could talk incessantly. So you better keep me honest here. So I was with the CMO of literally the biggest CPG company in the world, one of our long-term partners. This is not hard to find online if you want. And so he was sitting across from me and I asked him, what is your proprietary gift? And he said, um, well, no one spends more money than advertising than I do in the world. I was like, that's one of one. And I said, so are you selling or are you teaching? And he said, I've never thought of myself as my proprietary gift as a teacher. I have a bazooka to sell stuff, but what if I can teach the world? Sure. And I was like, exactly. What it, what it, like if you reframe things in your mind, what is your proprietary gift? What is your, I, you can take a company anywhere. So how do you do that? Because like mindset obviously could be a big barrier, stumbling block for people, especially when it comes to growth. So what if somebody realizes that like, hey, look, I know it's my mindset. I know I need to change my mindset. I need to see things through a different lens. Like how do you practically get a new mindset? Does that make sense? Like how do you well, expand what, your mindset? Yeah. Well, I think there's, it's a journey. First of all, it's not something you're like, I have a new mindset. You take your set of glasses off, put a new one in. I think it's, well, one, it, there's a lot of facts around this, for example. I'll, I'll give you one that's quite startling. So Binax Advisor Board has some of the great thought leaders in the world on it. You know, Adam Grant, Linda Hill, General Crystal, and others who have just helped encode the way we think, but also it's based in research, right? There's all, there's like 25 decision biases, cognitive bias, loss aversion, sunk cost, control bias, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things that's really blew my mind early in our journey here was that we learned that 70% of all growth, all the money you ever make in growth comes from 7% of the capital you deployed. Hmm. So if I bet 100 million or 100 ideas, seven out of 100, 7% of the capital, 7 million in this case, will lead to all of the money I ever make, all the unbounded returns. And so the immediate question of like a super administrator, like Six Sigma Ninja CEO is going to be, well, let's just do more of those seven, right? How did sure. I do those? When you go back and when you go back and you dig into that, you realize you can't. The 93 teaches you the seven. So the faster I get to the 93, they're going to fail. I get to the seven of the hundred that work. My learning velocity is equal to the outside rate of change. So now I'm learning in symmetry with the world. Second is, is that when you go back to the beginning and you look at the original check, there's two signals that it's going to lead to success. First is conviction. What does that mean? That is why us and why now? What is our proprietary gift and what's the outside force? Timing and giftedness. And they have to be true. So how do we know they're true, right? The second signal in that is non-consensus. It's disagreement rate. We make all of our money from the ideas with the highest disagreement rate. So wrap your head around that. So conversely, if we have consensus when we're trying to go for growth anywhere, you're basically screwed. How do you invest in non-consensus, high conviction, solutions to needs and the problems of the world? And what you have to do is you have to think with different skill and lenses to pull this off. Central to this idea is this mindset shift we call it TAM to TAP from a total addressable marketplace view of the world, which is inside out, right? Over the wall, making products for a customer to the outside in, solving the need with them in the need, the actual customer needs. So no, we're not competing with, you know, JetBlue or GM or Tesla or, you know, Unilever. We're focused on the needs in the world, and we're launching not five big bets a year because they're like silver expensive bullets. They're never going to hit. Rarely they sure. hit. We're going to surround that need with 100, 
with 90% failure, but we're going to do them in an efficient frontier where we're learning why us and why now. And so when that happens, whether it be incubations in the core incrementalism, quite frankly, it happens a lot, acquisitions, direct investment partnerships, it's because we are going to win the need and it's going to teach us, Not we're not going to teach the world. It's going to happen because it's being taught. So that is a really spectacular way. So you got to reorganize the way you work. You got to have, you have to have growth boards to invest and think differently. That's the guns and bads in the, in the top. We need special forces for growth. We have a Navy. We, we got to be able to take beaches. Where are the two in 100 that should be our entrepreneurs? And we have to be able to do the zero to 100. Launch things to the right funding models, stages, CWC rounds, to fund them to accomplish that growth. So very different, but totally possible for any large organization. Do you think there's an actual formula to this? I mean, you, you talk about this formula that you have. I mean, or, or is the argument that some people are just in the right place at the right time? They're there because they, they, they intended to be there. They, mm-hmm. here's, here's the reason. They were alive when it happened. Sure. It's, it's not because this, you know, it, it's the outside forces. It's the same reason why, you know, there was 26 social networks, then Facebook, you know, or, you know, 30 search engines and then Google. You had an unbelievably one of one gifted team with an obsession, with a secret. And you had a world that showed up on time, outside forces, ubiquitous internet, whatever it is. Yeah. So as, as you go into these companies and you know, you have these lenses, you have all the, this framework that you use and your proprietary gift that you share with them, where does the resistance come from? Because I mean, this all sounds great, right? But then you, you have to right. go implement this within a company. Right. What breaks down? So first we've scaled this to the moon. Like we have some of the largest, most successful turnarounds like in market history now have done this for the last five, six, seven years. Most of our partners are in you know multiple billion dollar outcomes at this point. So it's not a toy. In fact, we try to kill toys. Like you know, a lot of there's a lot of accelerators and incubators and labs and venture groups, and they're not taken seriously, and they should. In the context of funding a portfolio, all those different attributes they can become very valuable. So, but you have to think about it as a system. You have systems that are designed for efficiency. We need one for growth. It's about collecting all the best of what you have and organizing them into the five components that create an operating rhythm that thinks, invests, and discovers with velocity. So the only way to go, go to go faster is to do less work. So we have to replace some of the policies and tools and skills and often people in this model so it can create speed. So a lot of our partners typically take years to get to market with a new offering. One in particular, to Daneless, great, great president of the company who brought us in, used to take two years to get their CPG good to the marketplace. They can go from concept to first dollar today in 17 days, but they'll do that 100 times because they're looking for signals. They're trying to build a unicorn. They're trying to get, get and figure out to answer the question, should we do this? So the reason why this is adopted at scale is because of your last question is because it's actually a bad idea killing machine. So as soon as the CFOs and COOs realize that, they are the key functions that drive this because they realize I'm no longer afraid to launch 100 things, which is what they're terrified of, 100 ideas that never die and no one tells them the truth about. It becomes a political machine to, nope, I have a truth machine (laughs) that I'm on the board of investing in looking for the signals because I know how to do this job now. And it kills bad ideas and it grows the right ones fast. That is a gift. That's why it gets adopted because it actually, in the beginning, is cost out. It's about speed. I can do more with less than faster. And that's like an atomic miracle in a large company to put on offense. 
And if the leadership is an impediment to all this, is it possible to change their mindset, to upskill them, to train them so that they can take this and, and run with it? Or is it usually a, a rip and replace when it comes to a poor leadership team? I would say we would never go in with that intention or spirit. I think it's because you're putting people on the defensive. And I think that you can't have growth through a psyche of fear. You know, what's underneath it all, like fear, abundance, fear, love, right? And so if you don't have openness and abundance, you can't really create growth. In fact, many, most large organizations are so fear-driven, trying to do it inside the big to bigger because of that is almost impossible. It's literally at war with it, but it's not, it's not impossible. And here's how. You got to lower the cost of failure. Any CEO who's looking for growth and looks at the work we do, our model and the, and the, the success we've had, you can run a pilot. Try it. Why would I try something different? And lower the cost of failure. We're going to go, it's like going to the gym without weights, right? If you go without a trainer, you know, with an app, you read a book, it's like, you look at me, it's like dad bod. It's like horrible, right? <laughs> if you go to the gym, a new equipment with a trainer who's, an, who's extreme, <laughs> you will be transformed because you have 60, 80% of your power you lift on the field because you're just, you don't have the mindset, you don't have the skill, you're not pushed. And this is Adam Grant's work that says to get to truth, you have to have radical insiders and radical outsiders to succeed. Because if you're just a radical insider, you can't get the voice. It's like you're, you're biased. You must have radical outsiders with your insiders working together, almost like a vice on a mind, mind of the company so the evidence outside gets in and that's when it, that's where the change happens. They realize it's skill. Sure. Absolutely. Well, let, let, let's switch gears here just a little bit. When you did your sabbatical and you traveled around and you went to all these countries, what changed about you or, or were there any like aha moments during this time period when you're out exploring different cultures, having all these different experiences and, and seeing the world? Well, uh, I guess I'm at 47 countries, but I think I would say while everybody is different when we're all the same. <laughs> the same way, mm -hmm. regardless of your station and where you are in your life, privilege or not, like you still want to grow. You still want the best for yourself. You want the best for your kids. You want the best for your community. There is a there is a gene in all of us that that is you know connected about journey. And I think that that no matter who you collide with, that energy, spirit, language, culture, otherwise, is exactly the same because we are exactly the same. That's the first thing. The second thing is too much has been given, much is, should be expected. It doesn't mean you're in a position of better or worse. We have a lot of inequality here in the United States, but you know, all things being equal, our inequality and our privilege is often greater than most. And yet there's still injustice at every level. And so I don't think you can really unlock all the things we'd love to unlock about what's possible for each other unless you're willing to look at those things with, with fairness and balance and sameness in a way. And so those are the things I really took from that. And while that sounds like really on time, you know, in this era, especially this last, you know, this last important 12 months of our lives, it's something I've been carrying with me for probably now 25 years, um, having gone through the collision with the world and seen, you know, seeing some really heartbreaking things. And not sure. because they were any wiser, smarter than I was. It was because that was their journey. And there's a lot of journeys out there that are similar to ours, but really tough. Yeah. And I agree with that. And I mean, I've, I've traveled around, not to 40 countries like you, but I've been to you know places like China and India and South America and Europe and, and all over the place. And you know, for me, like traveling around like that helps me to empathize you know, with, with people, mm -hmm. right? And to, to your point, realizing that we're all the same right? Even though we have different backgrounds, experiences, and everything else, we do want the same things. And I believe that people are inherently good. Having that empathy as a leader and like building, like traveling around builds that empathy within me. 
So then it allows me to interact with people differently and have better relationships. How important do you think empathy is when it comes to lowering the the cost of failure, building that trust, like building a culture and, and working with teams? It, is it important or is it just a buzzword that's overly used in business today? I don't know how you can learn without it. How can you compete without empathy? Mm-hmm. Like make it, a, if you reframed around a selfish skill and it was about Okay, well, it's data, it's it's information, it's knowledge about my customer. Do you literally think you can go in front of your customer and like, um, hey, will you buy this if this da da da? What if I did this? And what if I did it? Like, it's like there's a narcissism in the idea when it becomes selfish, but the, it's really about learning and listening. And if you can flip that and actually truly live that empathy because you've experienced and you've seen it, and in in sort of almost like the quantum entanglement of it. They're walking in a 3D reality with people who are you, but not you, helps you shape and say, I could be them. In fact, statistically, I should be them. And more importantly, statistically, I should be them a thousand years ago, more probably than this unique, tiny little nanosecond of this stardust that we're on. So like, you know, when you realize how fortunate it is, you can actually imagine yourself in their shoes. But more important, I think what that imbues is trust. They can be seen. So empathy isn't just a, a relational thing. It's a competitive thing if you really are really take the selfish gene in us. But that aside, because I don't think that's actually a great way to look at it. I do think that when you're all the same, you can see yourself in them because you should be them. Then maybe even you can see yourself in this. You can see the entire dimension of it, the entire conscious journey, uh, because you actually think about it. Sure. And what what is it like to be on the consumer end of your product, walking through the aisles, asking yourself, what brand of soap can I afford? Sure. Wrap your head around that for a second. That is an internal conversation that millions of people have the privilege to make because many don't. And sure. some people have never even thought about that ever, but it's a real thing. So I, I just think that you can't answer that question if you can't imagine yourself with a moral obligation to say, I should be experiencing that because I am experiencing it because we're all the same. Yeah. So yes. it's a bit, it's a circular answer, but I do think that I try to bring muscle around that quality because uh, that's where growth lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. And that's a great answer. Well, let's talk about the, this podcast. It's called Strategic Financial Leadership. And, you know, obviously it's about like helping people to become more strategic, you know, having like the financial side of it and, and being great leaders. And you talked about at the beginning, one of the important parts of leadership in running a company is not running out of cash. How important do you think the financial side is for a leader to understand? Not saying they need to be debits and credit nerds in the back, right? Like, you know, working in the trial balance, but, you know, running a company, you talk a, a lot about these different lenses and these different things on the show today. How important is the financial side for yeah. a leader to understand? I mean, I, there's a puzzle of a leadership team and you've probably done spiral dynamics, right? Probably the CFOs are blue, right? I have a blue in my life, right? And I need a blue because I'm like teal, extreme teal, like meta. But that, I, that puzzle is assembled to create trust, but tension. And so getting the, the concoction right, that voice right is really important. But I will say this, and particularly as financial leaders, financial leaders are some of the most innovative people in the company, but they're trapped, right? Sure. And so if you can, untra- but they're trapped by fear because they feel that they let elements of their disciplines go, the knock-on effect of the organization will be catastrophic. And in many cases, they're probably not entirely wrong. But if they're systems builders, they think, if I can build a system that creates the permission to go put the company on and brings the discipline systematically, it's not about me governing it. I'm building a system to govern it that I can trust. I want to allow the company to go grow and go on offense. 
But if I'm going to constrain it because I'm going to demand that it be right, I'm going to demand that it knows the answer because that's what planning is, it will never discover the future because it's only allowed to plan. Growth lives in discovery, not planning. I, I sure. proved that statistically speaking. So as a leader, you know, you, you kind of your, me- your measurement of your leadership, even though you might be in the C-suite in those dimensions of finance or operations, if no one is following you, you're not a leader. <laughs> you're just sitting in a box at the top. Sure. And I just think that that's a really important test to ask yourself is, is, do I lead in such a way that creates permission and vision and goal and principled system building as opposed to fear-based disciplines that limit what's possible as opposed to trust that I can systematically manage with the freedoms do I know that bad ideas are going to die, good ideas are going to grow? Or by the way, that could be policy. Sure. I could be spending, I, you know, one of the great examples of this is that I could be funding disciplines and policy that are, I'm lighting my money on fire at world growth because no one can try anything. Why, why, can't, yeah. why can't a company launch something that's born to die in 90 days? Why am I spending the same amount on legal procurement and compliance on every single thing like it's a nail Sure. and I'm the hammer? Nope, wrong. That is the result of your truth and your system of permission. I should have an incredibly agile system that can, in the entire journey of putting my company on offense, I'm using the right tool, the right place, the right time. So it has and sees every opportunity can grow because it's not all the same. So my intellectual elasticity, my permission, the way I lead, what the idea of the vision I own in my seat is central to this. It's not a function. It's an unlocking. It's a carrier of that vision. It's a distribution of resources to do it, but it needs to create the permission to discover growth. My, one of my favorites in the world is John Muller um, at uh, P&G. Remarkable. Okay. Guy who's a very disciplined thinker, decision maker, also one of the great innovators in the whole company. It would not be successful. He's not afraid. If he trusts the system because he participates in it, he knows if it's made for truth, bad ideas will die, good ideas will grow every day in the core, not, not just things that might come in the future every day. That's what he encourages it because he focuses on the system and not the people. It can be done. And the, the CFOs and CFOs, are the linchpins of putting a company on offense. Sure. They have to take ownership of whether they're the ceiling or not. I like that. That's great. So let's talk about fear. Let's talk about fear, growth, trust, all these things and bring it back to uh, the pandemic. So as you look forward into the future, right? There's some companies that are thriving during this time period. And there's some companies that, you know, once PPP funds run out or once other things really hit, they're going to be in some trouble. So as, as you think about the future, what opportunities do you see in the world of business as it relates to the pandemic? Are you bullish on it? Are you more uh, bearish on the future of business? Are there things that excite you that, that businesses can, you know, latch onto it and really capitalize on different opportunities out there? Talk to me about your perspective on business in the pandemic. Yeah, it's, it does, it's a massive question, a lot of dimension to it. Well, I, I, listen, I think one of the great things that came out of this last year was the sense of responsibility that we all have. We can't be thinking through a zero-sum lens. I win, you lose. Market share, community, society as a whole. We, we, I think we are making the fundamental step from a shareholder-dominated world to a stakeholder-dominated world. We're, go, we're actually going back to the original purpose of a corporation, which is to take care of its community, its employees, and then the customer, not the shareholder. So I'm not saying they're not important. It just means that like there are more important things than that, actually. If you read New to Big, it's the entire second chapter that Christina uh, and I wrote were about that idea is that we have to get back to the purpose of a corporation, what the meaning of it is behind. 
And because it's, if it's not going to come through a civil society entirely, it's not going to come through government entirely because it, the, the asymmetry in government philosophy is so vast today, polarized, then we have a moral obligation in business to do the right thing. And so that's the first thing is that that sense of responsibility and totality, the corpus of that work is now being returning to the purpose of a corporation. The second thing is that it turns out businesses can adapt, right? Sure. GM built a ventilator factory in what, nine, like, I don't know, four months, six months from a car line. Like that would take them 10 years in the past because sure. there was Will, you know, the CEO was amazing. Right? And she just did it. Like, turns out, you could say, we're going to do this and it can happen. Once you resoundingly set on your North Star and your purpose and the meaning and the why, the company is agile. The company has the resources, has the people, has entrepreneurship. You just take these un- overbuilt guard- guardrails off you're paying a fortune for and just let it go to his job, which is win, <laughs> whether it be a social problem or a business problem. You know, there's a, there's a great book, if you've never read it, by Poe Bronson called Top Dogs. And he, has this, he talks about the philosophy of playing to win versus playing just not to lose. So he uses sports as a great sort of correlated statistic behind this. So in soccer hockey, when you have a tie, you have a tiebreaker, right? Five shots typically on goal. So five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one. It's very dramatic if you're not a sports fan, but if sure. I'm sure you are. I love those things. Some people hate them. So the first striker, let's use soccer or hockey. The first striker for both teams in a shootout scores 80% of the time. It's like 81 point da, 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 percent. And so you're tied zero zero. So you literally have nothing to lose. You're playing to win, right? You're equal yeah. and you're going all in your entire mindset. So if you stay zero 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 or you go up by a goal, you're still playing to win. The probability the next striker goes in and scores the next goal goes from 80 to 92%. Interesting. So winning begets winning when you have a mindset of playing to win. Conversely, if you go into the game and you have to win the game or you go down by a goal, you start to lose. Now you're just playing to win. You have to be careful. The probability the next striker goes up and scores that next goal is sub 60%, which means you can't win. Your mindset has profound statistical outcomes. So if you're the CFO or CEO and you're just playing just not to lose, just doing enough, you're dead. You have to have a mindset that plays to win every single day, all the time, in everything you do. And that's not about money. The system will solve the money truth problem. It's the mindset. The same point I made earlier about portfolio theory, consensus, not consensus, high conviction. So these are skills, the lens of the world through, and they're not soft. They're hard. Empathy is a hard thing, <laughs> like mm-hmm. factually to data. These mindsets are hard. They're data-driven. And yet most companies have eradicated them. So where does somebody go if they want a new mindset? They go to school, they read a book, they listen to an audio book, they read a magazine, what, they, they just work in a, an organization, get mentored by somebody. How, do, how does somebody go about doing this practically? Well, I, you know, listen, I think experimentation in your life is really important. The intellectual elasticity that most people have is much greater than they would ever dare imagine. And they just don't test themselves. And so I think you could do this in small ways in your life is to take risk, run experiments, you know, about your own biology, your intellectual aspect, your spiritual life, your own, you know, psychological journey, try those things. Um, but as an organization, saying yes to things in an organized way is a really powerful way to do that. You know, once a CEO demonstrates vulnerability, truth, a question-driven leadership, as opposed to like the addiction to being right, where they look at every idea and they immediately launch with like, well, let me tell you what I think about your idea. A job of a great growth investor is to create unfair advantage to the team. A founder and the team inside of a large company or externally is there to bring truth. 
if you don't have truth with your teams, that is on you. If you don't permission in the room, that is on you. If they're not learning anything new and you're investing it, that is on you. You have to take full ownership of these things. And you have to give permission to the team to go get the answers and do it in a way that is scientifically true on offense with total permission to break smash your biases. And if you can't do that with a two-person team in your company, you'll never, you, you're, you have zero chance. So I'd say run an experiment. Do it differently. Sure. Be Mary Barry. Launch something in the world. Just go do it. Yeah, put yourself out there. No, that that's great advice, and and this has been such a fruitful conversation, David. So many cool things that you're doing, and uh, how exciting! And and yeah, your book, new to big. How do people get that? Well, you can find more about what we do at on Bionic, O N B I O N I C dot com, and then the book is at new to big, but it's on the website, Amazon, all the other places. Happy to send it to you. And then we do a lot of we do the company, we do a lot of keynotes, we do all the all the stuff, right? And it's um. But I'd say it's more about just instigating. It's really about, can you politely and respectfully provocate experiments to try something differently? And that's what we love, love starting. Yeah. Nope. And it seems like you're, you're really good at that. So thank you for your time today, for being a guest on the show. Uh, a lot of value here for the listeners. And I wish you all the best, David. Very grateful. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.